Welcome to Churchpreneur's Podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith-related. Churchpreneur's vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness in fulfilling the Great Commission in our communities. Churchpreneur's hopes to embolden people to fulfill the Great Commission beyond their own borders into the rest of the world within this generation. In this podcast, I talk about everything that's moving me in relation to church theology, hopefully to empower you in your ministry, Bible study, theological understanding, and most importantly, your personal growth in Christ. Welcome to the show, all you churchpreneurs out there. I am in the last several episodes covering the Rediscover Bethel series. Bethel Church in Redding, California put out a six-episode series um, called Rediscover Bethel. They had different titles uh, to every single episode, um, and I need to correct something. I made a mistake in the last episodes. I believe I said that Chris Valatun did three episodes and Bill Johnson did three. I think it's wrong. I think... Bill Johnson did four episodes because this episode we're covering today was with Bill Johnson and Chris Valentin only did two episodes with Dan Fairley. Dan Fairley was in each and every episode, all six of them. The episode I'll be covering today is Rediscover Bethel, episode six. They title their episode, this episode, Church Structure, Teaching and Politics. So Bill Johnson, Dan Farrelly were together. Uh, Dan Farrelly is sort of interviewing or leading the discussion um, with Bill Johnson doing the majority of the talking. So let's jump right in. Thanks for tuning in. And if you stuck with me this long, man, wow, Uh, you are really patient. This hopefully will be shorter. I'm going to really try to make it short, but I cover everything in these episodes, I, or everything that I noticed that was critical that I should cover. And uh, I don't, I'm not going to put the videos up for you to see. You're going to have to go look at those yourself because uh, often Bethel will put a copyright cl- claim on people's YouTube pages. And I don't want any copyright strikes on my account. So I'm going to tell you what they said. I'll give you the timestamp. I'll put the uh, link for the show that I'm covering now in this show in the description. So check that out. You can look at it and follow along at your discretion. At the 52nd mark, in this sixth episode, Bill Johnson is asked by Dan Fairley if he is part of the NAR. Bill Johnson says he doesn't really know what it is uh, until a little while ago. This cannot be true. Uh, Look at my other notes in all the other episodes. I show beyond a shadow of a doubt he knows what it is. He's written a book after book claiming that he's part of the NAR. People have also claimed about him that he's part of the NAR or the apostolic movement. Now, the term New Apostolic Reformation, which was coined by C. Peter Wagner, he might not have been familiar with. That might be true, but he is part of the movement. Other leaders have confirmed him as being part of the NAR. He's appeared at the Apostolic Commissioning Service of Todd Bentley, and C. Peter Wagner was there and claimed that all the people on the stage were part of the NAR by naming them as apostles in the movement. Bill Johnson was among them at that Todd Bentley's apostolic alignment service is what they called it. So the most recent book by Che An 
named Modern Day Apostles. Bill Johnson wrote the foreword for that book. In that book, Ahn claims that he, this is a new apostolic reformation. I got the book right here. I used it as well last time in our last episode. Shay Ahn wrote this book. It's called Modern Day Apostles, Operating in Your Apostolic Office and Anointing. So they believe that it's an office for today. It's a governmental ruling office for the church that apostles and prophets rule and govern the church. Bill Johnson wrote the foreword for this. Chris Vallotton, like I said in the last episode, in the last episodes, Chris Vallotton wrote a recommendation quote. And so this book claims that, uh, that God is restoring the office of apostle for the modern day. Johnson is part of the movement unequivocally. And you can check out my other episodes on this um, in this series that describe how detailed they are and how much they're part of this movement. And that they're not just part of the movement, they are the main architects of this movement. Um, but here in this video, he, he shimmies and shivers and vacillates and waffles around the topic and says he didn't know really, really know what it was till a little while ago. This is, again, and I've said it in the other episodes, intellectually dishonest. There's mounds and mounds of evidence that he belongs to the movement. The book also, The Reformer's Pledge, in which he wrote a chapter. This is The Reformer's Pledge. Um, I got it as a freebie somewhere, I think. I can't remember exactly where now. But Bill Johnson wrote a chapter. Lance Wall now, Chuck Pierce, Heidi Baker, C. Peter Wagner before he passed away, James Gall, John Arnott, Cindy Jacobs, Lou Engel, and Jim Garlow all wrote a, a chapter in this book, The Reformer's Pledge. I don't know if you can get a good look at that. I see that in my light. But they believe it. It's a reformation. They are reforming the church with an apostolic movement. And uh, so it's not really uh, intellectually honest of him to say he doesn't really know what it is. Uh, that's gaslighting, <laughs> honestly, again. Sorry, I hate to use that term, but that's what's happening in our culture today. Uh, people are gaslighting facts. He's a part, and it's very clear. Look at my other uh, shows on this, and you can see how I really in detail uh, connect them to this movement and show that they're architects, not just that they're a part, but that they're architects of the movement. So at the three-minute mark, Bill Johnson starts to explain again the five-fold ministry and basically says it's a way of looking at things as a way of life. It's a way of living out ministry, and we have to have these gifts because we haven't arrived at the, quote, full maturity of Christ. They use this often in this movement to say the church is not fully mature, so we still need all five of these offices. They call them offices in the previous episodes. I'm not sure exactly in this episode if they've called it um, offices, but in Ephesians 4, where it's taught, where he's referring to where the five ministry, fivefold ministries where they get this idea. Those are gifts for sure. It's very clear from the context in that passage that those are giftings, not offices. So they say that we need these five offices because the full maturity of Christ has not been realized yet. And uh, he's given the same arguments that they all give. It's not new. It's not profound. This is what the fivefold ministry proponents have said for years. That the but these are gifts, right? They're not offices. 
um, and we're not mature in Christ, so we still need these things, yeah? So, so far in this show, he hasn't said that they're gifts or offices. In the previous episodes, they have called them offices. Chris Valentin, I believe, called them offices. Um, so he hasn't quite mentioned whether they're gifts or offices. He just calls it the fivefold ministry. In previous episodes, they have used this term interchangeably, office and gift. Um, so see my previous notes, see my previous episodes, and uh, they use the terms interchangeably, gift and office for the fivefold ministry. At the four minute and 30, 30 second mark, Bill describes how when he goes to other places, they asked him what he wants to be called uh, a title, I guess. Yeah. And he actually says, I'm not comfortable with the title apostle. And, and so he's actually says here that these other organizations or other churches or wherever he's speaking, asked him what to call him. And he says, I just really like they rather call me Bill. He says sometimes that they, they do call him that Bill because he just asked to be called Bill. Um, and then sometimes they need to give him a title um, wherever he's speaking. So some pl places, some traditions appreciate a title. Um, and so uh, they have to give him a title like apostle or pastor or some title because of that tradition. And so he says he just goes along with it if they've, given him that title. So that's very interesting. So he has gone along with the title apostle. Um, it's so it seems, um, by his own admission, he just goes along with it because of their tradition in places where he doesn't really want to go along with the title apostle. He, he allows it. In other words, you should just tell people, you know, if, if you don't have a title, you tell them, right? If you have a title, you tell them, uh, if you're, you know, if you're comfortable with the title, tell them. If you're not comfortable with the title, then don't tell them and tell them what to call you. Um, if you're not comfortable with the title apostle, then don't let people call you that. But we know that Chris Valentin in his other episodes as well, he said very clearly that Bill is an apostle and is his apostle and he's his prophet. So I've heard it in sermons as well from Chris that Bill Johnson is the apostle at Bethel. He's the head apostle, and he's very comfortable with the title. So he's not uncomfortable with it. If he was uncomfortable with it, he would say, and he would uh, say, excuse me, uh, you know, please don't call me that. But he's comfortable with it. That's the point. Not only is he comfortable with it at other traditions where they might have to give him the title apostle, I don't know why a tradition has to give someone the title of apostle. It's the, uh, it's the New Apostolic Reformation traditions that have to give him that title apostle. But anyways, um, he is comfortable with the title um, in his own context, and he's comfortable with the people calling him the title at other contexts. He's also comfortable with people calling him that in publications and sermons. And in the New Apostolic Reformation material here, I give you again um, the smoking gun that is the modern day apostles by Shay on Shay calls Bill Johnson the apostle of Northern California that is an enormous amount of people I mean uh, alone in the Bay Area Northern California San Francisco Bay Area there are six million people living now a lot of people are leaving California in these last days but there's a lot of people in Northern California 
Shayon calls him, names him the apostle of Northern California. So he's comfortable with it. He's comfortable with people calling him that in his own context at Bethel. He's comfortable with other people in other contexts calling him that when he goes to visit places. He's comfortable with people in publications calling him that. And um, so, I mean, I don't know what else is there to, 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 to say, you know, he is called an apostle in the movement. And if he's not comfortable with it, he should correct people because he wrote the foreword for the book. If he's not comfortable with the title, then he should correct them. I mean, if, you write, if you're invited to write a foreword for a book, then you probably have the ability to say, you know what, you've called me an apostle in that book. Um, I don't think I am comfortable with that. <laughs> I mean, if you're invited to write a foreword for a book, you probably have a little bit of say into what is going on there. Um, but he doesn't correct people. He's an apostle and he's comfortable with it. He tries to clarify then what the gift of apostle and prophet have that others don't have. Here's what he says, quote, but the way I look at the apostolic gift, the apostolic calling is that both the apostle and the prophet have their position, gives them a perception of heaven and how it should affect earth in its culturizing role. So what he's saying there is the apostle's gifting is to bring heaven to earth, to affect the culture of earth with the culture of heaven. And uh, this leans into their eschatology as well. The eschatology says that heaven should come to earth um, and the end times that the Lord will not return until the earth, the, the heaven has come to earth. And it will just be sort of like a a melding into um, heaven coming to earth and that Christ will return when the, when the bride of Christ, the church, is totally victorious. That also plays into their theology of dominionism. Dominionism says that Satan is the ruler of this world, uh, which there is some evidence in Scripture that Satan does have uh, more leeway in this world, at, but at the sovereign control of God, uh, we believe in the Reformed tradition, and that um, that uh, Satan is in control of this world in this view, and that we should move into uh, certain sections of culture and kind of kick Satan out. So that plays into all those theological perspectives that are aberrant. By the way, just as a side note, those theological perspectives, those eschatologies, in my opinion, are aberrant. I would give more leeway to an eschatology that's a little different, but the dominionism perspective and theology is aberrant, and I wouldn't give any room for it whatsoever. So he um, talks about this heaven coming to earth. That's the role of the apostle and the prophet, this kind of this giving the perception, creating, giving the perception of heaven to earth and affecting culture with the culture of heaven. I think I've said this before, but these guys just make stuff up. There's no way that I can imagine that the Bible explains a prophetic and apostolic gifting as this. It's just not there. I mean, again, I could be mistaken. Show me where there's evidence that an apostle brings the culture of heaven to earth. Even the 12, you know, they did heal people to substantiate their ministry and to substantiate the word of God that they were writing and the foundation of the teaching of the apostles. But even did, did they communicate, oh, we're bringing heaven to earth, where they just didn't communicate that. It sounds really nice, 
But where is it in the Bible? I've never seen a definition of the apostolic and prophetic gifting put into these terms before. Not biblically. Uh, Moving on to the eight-minute mark, Dan Fairley begins to explain what he missed growing up in denominations, that basically every sermon that he ever experienced was about how to have a better marriage, how to do this or that sort of focusing on the sheep, you know, um, focusing on moral stuff and whatever, you you know, that, that may be true. But because he was exposed now to the apostles and prophets, his horizons were opened way up. Now he understands how the blueprint of heaven, uh, what the blueprint of heaven looks like. They talk about this a lot, that apostles are meant to bring the blueprint of heaven down to earth. Shayan talks about that as well in his, uh, his book, Modern Day Apostles. In this section, it's, it's very interesting uh, what he's getting at because he's basically saying that denominations only have a teaching element. They don't have the fivefold gifts. In effect, uh, what what Fairley's saying here is that the the other denominations they're just limited. They're limited to one thing. Um, now, uh, give him a credit here. He does have a point that it may be limiting. Um, you know, the denominations do tend to teach, you know, to instruct their pastors. If you go to a typical church, I would guess, from PCA to Baptist to uh, Reformed to Methodist or any of these type of denominations, a pastor is going to have a sermon in his main service, and that's instruction. So he has a point in that. But are apostles meant to do what they claim they're meant to do? Building the blueprint of heaven here on earth Is that an apostolic function? Did the apostles in the Bible even do that? Did the apostles in the Bible bring the blueprint of heaven to earth? This is the $10,000 question. (laughs) Interesting. Look at what the apostles' ministry. They all were martyred. So it doesn't seem like the blueprint of heaven was brought to earth by the apostles' ministry. I mean, they were all killed at the hands of the people they were trying to minister to. It doesn't seem like they did a very good job at bringing the blueprint of heaven to earth. It seemed like they were overwhelmed by the, you know, by the opposition, as it were. But it built the church. You know, I mean, the church grew and blossomed because of persecution. So did the apostles bring the blueprint of heaven to earth? You know, I don't know. Like, if anybody could have done it and done it how it was supposed to be done, Probably the 12 would have done it, right? I mean, I'm just guessing. But that's not the function of an apostle. An apostle is a sent one. Now, the apostles of Jesus Christ, their functions were broad. They were the foundation. Jesus, the cornerstone of the church. They taught. They wrote the scriptures. Those were their functions. Their function was not to bring heaven to earth. So I dispute that claim very much. Um, first of all, apostles don't exist anymore in the sense of offices. Those 12, the offices of apostle died with those 12. The gifting of apostle, I argue, does exist. Some may disagree with me, and that's fine. Those full cessationists where they say the gifting doesn't even exist anymore, um, and they would rather the term missionary. I, I tend to think that the word apostle could be used or apostolic. I wouldn't, I would... Uh, shirk the the term apostle in any way for myself. I am a missionary, but I would say that the apostle could be 
um, apostolic gifting could be a missionary or a sent one because that's what the word means. So, um, but I definitely uh, dispute their point that apostle, even the 12, the 12, their uh, function was to bring heaven to earth. That, that can't happen. Heaven will not come to earth. Heaven will stay in heaven until the end times, until the new Jerusalem descends from heaven to this earth and God makes his place among men. So, uh, yeah, heaven will not come to earth. We die and go to heaven. Um, it, heaven can't come to earth because in heaven there's sinless perfection. Uh, there is no flaw. There is continual worship of God. Um, there is no marriage and giving in marriage. Um, so, I mean, we'd have to give up our wives and our families because there's no give, marriage and giving in marriage. Um, Bill Johnson would have to give up his glasses. Um, I'm just saying. I wear contact lenses, so I'm not giving them up. I, I'll need them for the rest of my life. And now I'm needing the reading glasses too. Isn't that a treat, right? As we get older, our arms get shorter, I think, or whatever. <laughs> so at the nine-minute mark, Dan Fairley says that every time Paul moved into a place, he bought that culture with him, the culture of, quote, bringing the blueprint of heaven to earth. Now, did Paul ever say anything remotely similar to that, that he was bringing the blueprint of heaven? No. He was the apostle of the Gentiles. He was preaching the gospel. And he said in Acts 20, verse 24, for his life verse, probably, I guess, as he was leaving Antioch, he said his life is worth nothing to him if only he may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus had given to him, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, not the task of bringing the blueprint of heaven to earth or something weird like that. This is such a bizarre teaching that these guys have created. They've made up their own thing out of their vain imaginations. It's just not in the text of Scripture. I can't find it anywhere. Hit me up in the comments if you can point to any text of Scripture outside of the Lord's Prayer that points to us bringing the, the blueprint of heaven to earth or heaven on earth at Bethel's, Bethel's thing. The Lord's prayer isn't even about that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not the things that happen in heaven to happen on earth. Not, the, not what, what heaven's like should be happening on earth. Not what heaven is it should be here on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That not as it is in heaven, so on earth. They flip that whole scripture around. That's not what that passage is saying in the Lord's Prayer section. And the apostles did not bring the blueprint of heaven to earth. You couldn't point to one scripture where the apostles unequivocally said, our task is to bring the blueprint of heaven to earth or bring heaven to earth. It's just not possible. You don't see it. Um, the one passage I could think about is where Peter says, that uh, when he preaches the gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, that times may refre of refreshing may come from the hand of the Lord, and, and he mentions heaven. That's a gift of heaven. Repentance and refreshment are a gift of heaven, not that the things that happen in heaven will take place on earth. It's just not in, the past, in any Bible passage that I can think of. 
but hit me up. I'm willing to be corrected in the text, in the comments below. You guys have been commenting along with this series. Very good. So thanks for that. <laughs> so um, nine minute mark, Bill continues to describe what it means for apostles and prophets. Their task is to bring a kingdom culture. So again, I don't know where he gets that. Where in the Bible does it say the apostles bring kingdom culture? They just sort of make stuff up, you know, um, the book Modern Day Apostles, the same thing. They just they just continue. They build they build this huge case for what apostles do and their tasks and their roles. And again, I, I've read in the past uh, episodes uh, the title the the chapter titles for these for this book here. He just builds this huge growing case of what apostles are meant to do, um, and that, that's nowhere in scripture. It's an extrapolation on an extrapolation on an extrapolation. So um, it's nothing new. They're not saying anything new here. We knew all this. They're confirming actually as well what they believe, that they want to build heaven on earth. And the apostle, you have to have the apostles to do that. That's the apostles' function. So that's why the, you know, even the weight that they put on apostles is necessary because without them, you can't have the heaven, the kingdom culture, the heavenly kingdom culture. And so uh, it, it puts their whole emphasis, their whole goal, their whole um, uh, emphasis is, is on the wrong syllable. You know, I mean, they, they have put their whole emphasis on uh, apostles bringing God's kingdom to this earth. And that's why they need these guys at the top of the pyramid, at the top of the food chain. Um, you can't do without them or else you can't have God's kingdom culture and you can't have heaven on earth. The 11-minute mark, Dan Fairley says, many people think that apostles and prophets will dominate and that they will control churches with heavy hand and stuff like that. But there are many pastors and elder boards and all their type of stuff who are controlling as well. This is true, and, and it can be true, sadly. And in many cases, there can be, there is evidence right now of a sort of this heavy-handed elder rule. Uh, we think of... Uh, instances like Mark Driscoll and um, the church up there in Seattle, uh, Mars Hill, and uh, people like this, James McDonald, and people who are very heavy-handed leaders, very controlling and manipulative, uh, and the strain of pastors who've fallen in ministry lately. Um, and with the rise of the internet, maybe, and popularity becoming easier to be well-known and superstar status, you know, it kind of goes to people's heads real quick. Um, so he does have a point here. Heavy-handed leadership, heavy shepherding, controlling, manipulation. Those are absolutely issues in the church that we have to face and we have to grapple with and deal with. Uh, but their movement is like apples and oranges, this movement, the New Apostolic Reformation, definitely controls people, manipulates people with every aspect of their theology. Everything from top to bottom is controlling. Bill is an unassuming personality. He's very, by his very nature and his personality, the way he speaks, he handles, he controls and manipulates people. He's so unassuming. And so people just like, like they gravitate towards him because he's so wonderful and so such a lovely kind of guy. And I admit that he is a very appealing, lovely, unassuming, soft-spoken California dude, you know, and um, that is very appealing. And that's part of the manipulation. People are drawn and magnetized to him because um, of 
of how he inter interacts with people. It's a controlling tactic by itself. Um, he's a master puppeteer. Chris Valentin also, when I was there, the people were just eating out of his hand. When Chris was speaking, they love him. And they, 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 just, they just hang on every word. And Papa Bill, you know, I mean, they call him Papa at their church. He is absolutely understood and seen as the top leader. The buck stops there, the head honcho. He's the top of the food chain. Bill is their leader, no question. Everyone else is as well in the New Apostolic Reformation and other apostles that I mentioned here and in other places. Everybody wants to be an apostle or prophet. It's their two giftings that they put the heavy, heavy emphases on the wrong syllable, like I said before. It's the two people that they really, um, they really, the two gifts that they put their most emphasis on, and everybody wants to be one. Um, so people want desperately to be apostles, and so they go to these apostolic centers. Uh, that's why they go to get their hands laid on them by one of these guys. You go to an apostolic uh, or prophetic conferences. Why do you go to those things? They go there to have the impartation. Um, so they want to, one of the apostles to go to these centers to have the, the apostle lay hands on them and impart to them the gift of apostleship uh, or prophetic ministry. So the power center, the power structure is absolutely set on apostles and prophets in this movement. It's impossible to argue otherwise. It's just as clear as day. They can say they don't put emphasis on it, but by the very theological framework, there's an incredibly inordinate amount of emphasis put on those who call themselves apostles and prophets. Case in point, this book, I mean... Operating in your apostolic office and anointing. They're trying to make people into apostles and prophets. There's more, more prophetic books out there than I can count. My stacks are probably, I have maybe, I don't know, 20 or 30. My stack of heresies over here on the right. So I'm looking over there. I, I probably have 20 or 30. And that's just really scratching the surface. I mean, that's probably... There's thousands and thousands of books on apostolic and prophetic ministry and, you know, operating in your, in your anointing and office. And as far as I can tell, um, C. Peter Wagner is, I said this in the previous episodes, is the founder and the, let's say, the coiner of the phrase. He coined the phrase, the New Apostolic Reformation. And um, he just started noticing as a missiologist, he was a missiologist at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. And he just started noticing this rapidly growing, intensifying uh, movement. And he wanted to put a name to it. He talked about several different options for a name, but he landed on the name, the New Apostolic Reformation, and he became a card-carrying member of the movement. And as far as I can tell, this was sort of, this book here, I'm going to pull it out here, this book, look, the Pentecostals are coming, is sort of the um, his beginnings in um, being very open to this movement. And uh, he describes it a little bit in here and describes how the move is taking place. What it, what the, what are some of the theological uh, um, firebrand points of the movement, where it is. He, he talks about in, in Bolivia. So he was a missionary himself. 
And um, yeah, during that time, I think he started to become more and more open to the movement. This book was published. <laughs> Isn't it funny? It's like super retro. Isn't that great? Um, even the cover just is like, it screams the 70s and 80s. But I think this book was published. Let's look at it. First printing in 73. I was right on the money. Look at that. That is so classic 70s. Isn't it great? Um, so this is called Look, the Pentecostals Are Coming. That's um, a book that I think started him on his journey. And about the 90s, he really became a card-carrying member of the movement. In 1999, he wrote an article where he described his process of coming out of the the mainstream evangelical movement and leaving uh, Fuller Theological Seminary to start Wagner Leadership Institute and to really push this apostolic uh, movement on to become its one of its leaders. He formed then the ICAL, the International Council of Apostolic Leaders, and became its first chairman, president, whatever you want to call it, head. Um, and uh, that happened, I think, in the early 90s is when he started all that stuff. And so the official sort of like organizational structures began to emerge in the New Apostolic Reformation in the 90s with him and starting these movements and organizations. He noticed it first, then he started becoming a part. So it's very clear. I mean, the bibliography of his books, I've got a bibliography now of, of all Peter Wagner books, and there's some 50, 60, 70 books that he wrote. And again, after this book, he wrote nearly specifically solely only on the New Apostolic Reformation. So, um, yeah, after this book, it really, the doors, flood floodgates opened. Um, it's a really interesting study in how someone can lose their way. Um, it's very interesting. Anyways, that's a side note. 1120 Mark is a section on ministering with those we disagree with uh, in this episode. In this section, the first question that fairly poses to Bill Johnson is how far do you let go your platform, your church, basically, to... to people you disagree with. Um, or And Bill gives a story about how a guy then came and spoke forever and ever, and Dan was waiting for Bill to intervene, so I guess he was just becoming long-winded. And uh, Dan was waiting for Bill to intervene and say, okay, that's enough, let's cut him off. Um, now, that guy wasn't doing anything that they disagreed with. It was interesting. He was just really going long somehow. The quote on page 116 of Bill Johnson's book, When Heaven Invades Earth, um, he says this about critics. For me to consider the criticism of this revival, and he was in the context talking about the Toronto blessing, would be the same as giving audience to someone trying to prove I should have married another woman. First of all, I love my wife and have no interest in anyone else. Second, I refuse to entertain the thoughts of any person who desires to undermine my love for her. Only those who will add to my commitment to her are allowed such an audience with me. Anything less would be foolishness on my part. The critics of this revival are unknowingly attempting to separate me from my first love. I will not give them place. I have many friends who are able to read the books of the critics with no ill effect. I respect them for their ability to stick their heads in the mire without getting their hearts dirty. I don't care to do it. It's just not my gift. Learn how you function best and function. While I have no time for critics, I do welcome the wounds of a friend. The corrections offered through meaningful relationships 
keeps us from deception. Two things to notice here in this quote. This is uh, Bill Johnson's book again, uh, When Heaven Invades Earth, page 116. You can go look for yourself. Um, which so far as I can tell, he's not retracted this statement. Um, it's like the people who he's, who he's talking about as critics, those people are trying to remove his commitment from his first love. And then he said that the criticism of their, of, of the critics, the material that they're presenting is like dung or mire. Mire is dung. I mean, it's poop. <laughs> so our critique the, the material within our critique, the, the, the contents is like sticking your hand down in cow dung and, you know, he can't get his heart dirty. He, he can't get his heart not, he can't not get his heart dirty by sticking his hand in cow dung. I mean, this is wild, right? Um, he has no interest in entertaining anyone who would critique the Toronto blessing or this continued revival is what he called it. He is, let's say, impervious to the critique. He's not going to let his heart be transformed away from its first love. Um, and so this movement, this revival is for him the only way. There's no other way. And to do anything else on his part would be foolishness is what he called or playing in the dung. So if you're critical of this movement and you present facts and biblical evidence of its, of, uh, you know, of, of the contents of this movement being aberrant, then you have presented dung. It's no, there's nothing else you can do with that. He doesn't believe that you can present critique that would not be cow poo. So, um, I guess my videos in this series are like cow poo, full of cow poo. Um, I guess I'm full of it. <laughs> so uh, this is probably why he didn't even consider my book when I wrote it and sent it to him. I sent him the manuscript. I sent his, um, I sent his, uh, assistant, the manuscript to my book, Divergent Theology, by the way, I'm the author of Divergent Theology. Um, and, uh, I sent him the manuscript. I didn't have to because public ministry, public speaking, public teaching, public books, can be critiqued. I don't, it's not a Matthew 18 issue. He didn't sin against me personally. So I don't need to go to him personally and ask him for, to repent because he hasn't sinned against me. Um, I believe he has taught falsely to the church at large. That's why you address those things publicly. That's what we've done for the entire church's history. It's not a Matthew 18 issue. He's not a part of my church. I couldn't even go to him personally and tell him he sinned against me. It's not even possible. I don't have any way to reach out to him. I tried to reach out to him. They didn't even, the gatekeeper didn't let me in the door. So, um, you know, how else? It's not a Matthew 18 issue. I don't have access to him. Um, I don't have, he's not in my church. I couldn't excommunicate him. So let me just take a little side note here. This is interesting. Matthew 18, they say, a lot of the critics of this movement say, you need to go Matthew 18 and go to him personally and privately. That does not apply to false teachers or teachers that you're critiquing their ministry or their teaching because that's the, Matthew 18 is talking about someone who has been sinned against. So if I've been sinned against by a person I know, the person has to be someone I know, they have to be someone in my church and they would have to be possible it would have to be possible for the person to be excommunicated from my congregation. Because you have that opportunity in Matthew 18 after the witness of two or three witnesses, you present it to the church and then you excommunicate them. You put them out of your fellowship. 
That's what Matthew 18 is about. I don't have that ability to do that with Bill Johnson or Chris Valentin. They're public teachers. They're, in, they're, they're pastors of a church at Bethel. I couldn't even do it at Bethel. If I were in Bethel and I tried to had a Matthew 18 issue with them where they sinned and were unrepentant, I couldn't go to them and excommunicate them. You can't excommunicate these guys. Anyways, Matthew 18 does not apply. Um, this is public discourse. Um, and his, his books, um, so, so in private correspondence, interestingly enough, they weren't playing, playing ball. This, this attitude of his is that he's not going to engage in critique is probably why he didn't even consider my book. I wrote it, I sent it to him and he didn't, he didn't have his personal assistant wrote back and said, he's not interested. Basically he believes in the divinity of Christ is what she wrote to me. Um, that's what she said in her personal correspondence and he will not retract any of those statements. Um, if you're not going to retract those statements, then you believe them. If you're not going to retract them, then you believe them. So in private correspondence between me and his personal assistants, he seemingly um, believes in the divinity of Christ. But in public discourse and in his books, in his sermons, in all of his presentations, he doesn't, or at least has very, very tenuous statements on the divinity of Christ. And then here, right before this section that he's going to talk about and ministering to people he disagrees with, he doesn't allow anybody in his purview that doesn't wholeheartedly get along with the Toronto blessing and the new apostolic reformation. He just doesn't let them in. They're not even allowed access to his heart. That's what he said. It's his quote. It's his own idea. So it's... Um, it's funny, you know, ministering with people who, who disagree with, he may disagree with them in a minor issue, but he doesn't let the critic in to critique him at all. So he may minister with people he disagrees with on little things, but this quote from his book is plainly clear. He doesn't allow the critic into his atmosphere, into his sphere. So uh, 1250 minute mark, Bill Johnson says he will not tolerate heresy. Okay, so he tries to fill that out, what heresy he might not tolerate, that the blood of Jesus was somehow symbolic. He won't tolerate that. Um, so that's good. Uh, he won't tolerate a symbolic cross, actually, which is very good from him. Um, so this is very interesting that he would say that someone is a heretic or he would not allow heresy or that there are such things as as heresy. That's interesting. He would actually say there's such a thing as heresy. And by definition, then, there are such things as heretics, those who would deny the cross or the blood of Jesus as the propitiation for our sins are heretics. Now, he didn't fill it out very detailed uh, what the blood of Jesus means, but he said, if you deny the blood of Jesus, um, that, that he wouldn't give you the time of day. So that's very good. Give him credit there. Good. He didn't fill it out in detail, just that if uh, the the cross was, if someone taught that the cross was just symbolic or the blood of Jesus was just symbolic, then he would call them a heretic. Um, I wondered if he could actually put a name to that face, though. <laughs> That's interesting. They, these guys, they're so funny. You know, I was talking to a main leader of the NAR. Uh, it's been a year ago now, and I actually asked him, he said, I would call someone a heretic. And I said, who? <laughs> Give me a name. Could you could you name someone who you would say currently in this current world landscape is a false teacher? He couldn't do it. He could not do it. I said, okay, let me help you out. 
Could you name Kenneth Copeland as a false teacher? A known, clear, and discernible false teacher. Anybody with any biblical discernment could say that Kenneth Copeland is a false teacher of the most egregious nature. He couldn't bring himself to do it. He could not do it. And then I, I just said, look, you don't, you can't do it. You don't believe in heresy because you can't bring yourself to name a heretic. One of the easiest names to give you. I, I threw you a softball. That's a softball. Kenneth Copeland is a, her- a, a, a false teacher, no questions, but he couldn't do it. And these guys, they couldn't bring themselves to name a single person as a heretic. They would just say, it's lip service. They, they just want to check the boxes that, oh yeah, there is such a thing as heresy. It's sort of this ambivalent thing in the clouds that, um, you know, maybe that's heresy, but, but they wouldn't ever, they could not ever bring themselves to name someone as a heretic and someone we should avoid. They just can't do it. So uh, I've never seen him do it anyways. If someone has seen a, has a video clip of someone saying, this is, this is a person that we should avoid. Actually, I take that back. I know about Jonathan Welton. At Bethel was a guy who went, literally went off the reservation. He went into New Age and all sorts of crazy stuff. And so Bill Johnson said he was someone to be avoided. Good for him. I give him a good hand clap for that one. Let's do it again. <laughs> Let's just just bring yourself, someone in the main line, word of faith, NAR, line of heretics and false teachers, name one. They cannot do it. So it has to be really, really, really bad. Like Jonathan Welton, they called him out and said he was a heretic and to avoid him. Um, but that takes, I mean, they've, they've got a really... Uh, work it up to, to bring themselves to, it's gotta be really, really bad. So at the 13 minute mark, the 13, 20 minute mark, he'd give more grace to those who teach something different than him on predestination. He said, there are many views on that. And he would tolerate that a little bit more than the main heresies. It's interesting. He would say that, uh, there is such a thing as heresy. Like I said, um, I guess that, uh, from that you would actually say he believes that there are something such as false teachers but they can't do it. They can't name them. Um, it's impossible. I'd really like to see that actually out of Bill Johnson's mouth, someone calling someone a false teacher. That guy is a false teacher. Avoid him. I, I don't think it's out there. I don't think even Jonathan Welton, he just said we should avoid him. Please treat him like he's, you know, like he needs prayer and stuff like that. He didn't say it was a false teacher. So um, he didn't fill that out with predestination, you know, in this episode. Um, at what point would he call someone a false teacher? Didn't say. Um, yeah, he Johnson uses an il- illustration of his father inviting a, a one week in his ministry a Catholic minister, and the other week a Baptist evangelist. Um, and you can't have two more polar opposite extremes than those. He says in this section that his dad would have invited anybody, but this is also a stretch. He doesn't invite anybody outside of the NAR circles to Bethel. I have never, ever heard of him inviting someone like, let me think, um, John MacArthur. He would never invite John MacArthur to his church or maybe Paul Washer, uh, someone like that. There's no way. 
he's only inviting NAR apostles and prophets uh, to come to speak at Bethel. There is no way he would even share the stage in these big events with anybody else outside of the purview of the NAR or someone they're trying to to uh, bring into the fold. You know, they do that. They they go they go get these teachers that are sort of these these preachers and teachers that are sort of maybe uh, more energetic on stage. And they try to kind of win them to their movement, which is what they're doing. And you see it and you probably know names. I'm not going to name them here. But Dan asked the question, aren't you afraid that if you invite someone who you're not really quite in line with, someone's going to get read their book? Bill Johnson says then, if anyone's really with us, they're going to have a steady diet of what God gives us. And they're not going to, to deviate. So that was his quote. Um, he says that those people, if they're really with us, they're really, you know, they have that heart for God. If they just love Jesus, then they'll give us what God has and they're not going to deviate too far. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do with this? I mean, you know, he'll say that there is such a thing as heresy, but then he'll work with basically anybody from a Catholic to a Baptist. I'd be very impressed to see at least a Baptist guy he's actually invited, but I digress, or a Presbyterian or any other denomination. So he's basically saying here, I've never, I'll never say to no to anybody who wants to come. So, I mean, this is silly. He's never invited anybody outside of his camp or his circles. Um, if you look at the people who have given endorsements, just to take any one of the NAR books that I've got on my shelf here and look at the list of endorsements, Cheon, John Arnott, James Gall, Heidi Baker, Todd Bentley. Um, it, it's funny, Bentley gave Bill Johnson a recommendation quote for his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, and now he's disgracefully fallen out of ministry and is, um, yeah, well, who knows what he's doing now? I don't know. But all these NAR guys, they're, they're just going to be at each other's events. They're not inviting anybody outside that camp. So let's give a list of NAR people inside the circle that they mutually invite to each other's events. The people who've written the book, The Reformers Pledge, Chuck Pierce, Lance Wallnow, Heidi Baker, C. Peter Wagner, who has passed away, James Gall, John Arnott, Cindy Jacobs, Lou Engel, and the like. These guys are inviting each other. They're not inviting outsiders out of those parameters. So this sort of a thing is a moot point. This is hilarious. He sort of indicates that he agrees with people who teach predestination. When was the last time someone at Bethel preached about predestination? There is no chance that anybody has ever uttered the word predestination at Bethel in the last five years, maybe the last 20 since he's been there. In the proper context, not making fun of it. They're usually, they poke fun at reformers, they, they, the Reformation um, theology, they, 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 they dog it. If they're saying anything about predestination, it's only for dogging it, um, not for uh, maybe presenting the view. No chance. There's no chance anybody has ever, I, I can't even imagine anybody's uttered the word predestination from the stage at Bethel. Yeah, I'm a monkey's uncle. If anybody has ever said the word predestination from the stage at Bethel in a proper context, in a positive light. 
<laughs> I'd love to find it, actually. That'd be pretty interesting. But it's never happened. So if it's happened, hit me up in the comments, give me the link, and I'll send you a free copy of my book. Signed. At the 16-minute mark, they start talking about how their horizons have been broadened and how their eyes have been opened to other perspectives by inviting people from all sorts of different backgrounds to Bethel. This is a bunch of malarkey. It's literally the poo-poo type of malarkey. There's, they've never invited anybody outside of the New Apostolic Reformation. So... I thought I'd have a look at the last sermons on their website, the people who they've invited, um, and here, I'll just give you a quick taste. You can actually look it up. It's Bethel.tv forward slash speakers. I'm not going to show it, but here are some of the list of the names. Eric Johnson, Bill Johnson, Paul Manwaring, Danny Silk, Chris Vallotton, Brian and Jen Johnson, Banning Liebscher, Aaron Tassaro. Abby Stumfall, Benny Hinn was on the list, um, Kulianos from Jesus Image, uh, let's see if I can go, John and Lisa Bevere, John and Carol Arnott, John Gray, Kim Walker-Smith, uh, Larry Randolph, Lou Engel, Mike Bickle from IHOP, Randy Clark, Ray Hughes, Russell Evans, and the list goes on, Sean Bowles. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. I looked through the entire list on their whole, whole website of all the speakers who have spoken there. Not a single one of them was from any other camp besides the New Apostolic Reformation. Maybe, just maybe, you can talk about Erwin McManus. Erwin McManus was a speaker there. He's not necessarily, that I know of, a deep part of the NAR. He spoke there. But He's got some deeply, deeply troubling theological perspectives, of course. So there, I didn't see one person on this list who would maybe even fall, not even into the Reformed camp or the really deeply conservative theological camp. I'm not even talking about a MacArthur follower or anything like that. I'm talking about just someone middle of the road. There wasn't anybody on that list on their entire website that they have had at their church that is even middle of center, much less someone, you know, who's, let's say, um, in the theological conservative camp that is reformed or reformed leaning or not a single one. Now, I don't know all the people on this list. Um, I probably know the ones I pointed out. I sort of knew some, most of them, but, but I'm almost sure like about 85 to 90% sure that not a single one of the speakers on their list would have even uttered the word predestination on Bethel stage. Actually, you know, let's think about that. I'm about 100% sure. So sure, I'm going to send you a free book um, if you find a clip with the words predestination rolling over the mouth of a Bethel speaker somewhere. <laughs> They're all all these speakers are part of the Word of Faith or NAR camp. They're all apostolic. They're all a part of the movement. They're all prophetic or apostolic. It's really, really something. Bill Johnson is not really telling the truth here. They don't have a diverse um, speaking group that has come and spoken at Bethel and preached at Bethel. They're not diverse. Um, there's no Baptists. There are no Presbyterians that I saw. 
I I didn't even see any Catholics in the list. They're not letting anybody else on their stage. It's not a part of this movement. Um, so I'll just move on. At the 17-minute mark, Bill starts describing how his father would invite people from all sorts of different theological backgrounds, and he saw up close their love and their personal commitment to Christ, and they just loved and they oozed Jesus, you know, even though uh, they said some weird things or whatever from whatever background they were from. So that's interesting. So he, apparently his dad invited people who said weird stuff, but they just love Jesus, so it's okay. Um, so 18-minute, 40-minute mark, Bill begins to get emotional when he talks about how awesome their love for God is, all those other things that they said or weird or strange things, whatever they did or mistakes or things they did on stage, they just faded away because Bill saw how much they love God, and he just gets so emotional. You know, This guy is perfect at bringing that emotion up right at the moments um, when it's supposed to come up. It's just a show. You know, Bill is such a great guy for just wanting to be next to people who love God so much. You know, all those guests that came um, in the years where he was a kid, he just wanted to get next to him because he loves God so much, you know, because he's such a loving papa. He just, he really brings that emotion up in the right and the perfect moments. It's very, very good, very well done. So at the uh, 20 minute mark, Bill Johnson talks about how he visited a church. And the pastor told him, I wouldn't have invited you if I didn't know what you did. Now, that is pretty scathing. Interesting. Uh, Bill Johnson responded to the pastor saying, well, I, I, I won't do it. I, I won't do anything that you don't want me to do. So tell me what would be okay with you, and I'll do that. I want to honor you. Johnson said the guy then was silent for a minute and said, well, do whatever you want then. Because Bill is such a dear and honoring person. You know, I'm here for you. I'm just here to serve you. You know, whatever you want me to do, just tell me that. And, and then the guy was sort of dumbfounded, speechless, and didn't know what to say. So he just let Bill do whatever he wants anyways. <laughs> I don't know if I believe this actually as a story, honestly. Um, Bill Johnson doesn't get invited anywhere where he doesn't have free reign and rule to do whatever he wants. I cannot imagine he got invited to a place where the guy actually said, I would not have invited you had I known what you believe or what you would have done. That's really funny. It didn't happen. I don't, I don't believe this story. Not the way he puts it. No guy said, I would not have invited you. No guy's ever said that to him. He gets only invited to places where he just is giving slaps, high fives, pats on the back. Thanks so much. We love you and we love you so, so much, you know? Um, yeah. Anyways, but he's such a dear guy for not stepping on anybody's toes, you know? Um, all this paints him in such a wonderful light as Papa Bill, you know? Secondly, he manipulates people here to believe he's actually doing that stuff. I don't think he's doing it. I don't think he's, I don't think he's changing anything up. He's, he's got his, his uh, program and he sticks to it everywhere he goes to speak. He is not open to critique. Can hardly believe this happened, but I mean, it's a personal story. So how can you, it's, it's unverifiable. Yeah. So at the 21, 15 minute mark, they have a section called learn how to think, not what to think in this section. They sort of put on as if they're actually teaching people to, to think or how to think, not what to think. I don't know what to say about this, honestly, because they've got books upon books upon books, teachings on teachings on teachings, telling people what to think. Um, 
And people, there's just testimony after testimony of people who have left Bethel who have felt manipulated, controlled, and manipulated into thinking their theology, controlled into this supernatural mindset where they have to perform miracles. That is mind control. That is control in some sense. And so he says he hopes to just teach the divine, the divine perspective. If you have that perspective, you'll come across it anyways. Whatever that, you know, if we're just looking at the divine, we'll see the right perspective. But that's just not accurate. They are teaching their theology. That's what this whole series is about. This this series, Rediscovering Bethel, is here's what we believe. Take it or leave it. You don't have to believe it, but they're teaching what to believe <laughs> by the very nature of this whole series. I, you know, they're so wonderful, though, because they're not trying to manipulate you. They're trying to just give you the tools to help you know how to think. That's garbage. I've looked at the BSSM um, uh, full curriculum. It is telling you what to think. Here are the bi biographies of these frauds and hucksters in this movement. Uh, from from John G. Lake all the way down to you know false and reconstruction um, biographies of and, and putting people in good lights that they're not they are telling people what to think. So um, that's a weird way to put it when you're actually telling people what you think and what to think with you. Uh, yeah. The 24-minute mark, then Dan Fairley covers a theme that they've gone over before on how to perceive. So perception, you know, prophets have to perceive truth. You know, they don't just teach truth or say truth. They perceive it. So uh, he's trying to teach people how to, per how to perceive things. This is a theme that they've talked about in four, episode four or five, I'm not sure, how to perceive and perceive what God's saying and that type of thing. So, you know, you can try to perceive what God's saying in this moment. It's basically how to feel. They're 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 um, teaching you how to um, how to how to work on your feels, you know. Um, all it's all about the feels, man. So basically, they're teaching people how to feel, not how to think. Um, that's also a joke. They're not teaching people anybody how to think. It's all experiential. Their whole ministry and practice is built around. They're not teaching exegesis. Exegesis would be teaching people how to think, how to unfold the Bible for yourself, opening up the pages of the Bible, giving you tools of how to understand the Bible for yourself. That's exegesis, hermeneutics, and exposition. Those things are taught in seminaries, so they, they open up your Bible. They don't tell you what to think about the Bible, about those passages. They show you how to think about it. That's what exegesis is, and they're not teaching it at Bethel. They're teaching only experience. I'm sorry, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's all about the feels there. It's not about exegesis. It's not about teaching you how to think. They're not teaching you how to think. So... I don't know what to say about that, honestly, because it's it's a mis misleading thing too here. At the 27-minute mark, 27:25, Bill Johnson and Dan Fairley start talking about being salt and light in today's culture. They discuss in this section how salt is a flavor bringer. Salt brings flavor to the culture. Um, I think he's actually plays a little bit fast and loose with this biblical analogy of scripture. I think it was not necessarily used in scriptural times as a flavor bringer, salting for a plate of food, for instance. Um, that uh, is 
not what the analogy I think is getting at in the scriptures. Um, the kingdom of God, when he talks about how we can basically be great business people, we're just flavor bringers. But I think um, Jesus, when he uses this analogy, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, salt cannot, when, when, when salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything but to be cast out and trampled under by men. So I think that analogy is not, you know, Jesus isn't saying we're flavor bringers. You know, we bring, we bring the spice of life. Ay, caramba. You know, that's not, that's not what Jesus is getting at. I think he's really misinterpreting uh, the passage where Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer useful and to be thrown out and trampled by men. He's actually misrepresenting and misinterpreting the passage of Scripture. Jesus' point is not that salt has a value for flavoring or for preserving. Jesus' point is that if it loses its saltiness, it's no longer valuable. So again, these guys don't really know how to interpret the meaning of Scripture. They just sort of, you know, they've heard that preached. But who who hasn't preached that before? You know that salt is a flavor bringer. We bring the we bring the spice to the world. You know, we're the we're gonna zip things up a bit. That's that's not what what Jesus is getting at with the salt uh, analogy. I have another big objection with what Bethel does. They send out kids, for instance, from BSSM who go out and heal people. They bring their quote-unquote kingdom culture, as they call it, and the kingdom culture doesn't look anything like the kingdom of God. It's basically those kids going out looking for people with purple shirts who have crutches or are in wheelchairs or have a cast on. I've actually seen recently a, a, a group of BSSM students going out trying to heal a man in a wheelchair. They just say, get up. They just tell them to get up. It's really, really awful. My qualm with them is that they send out people trained in the wrong kingdom culture. If there is such a thing as kingdom culture, they train in it incorrectly. They have the wrong kingdom culture. They're sending out kids with this wrong mentality, this wrong kingdom principles, and and the bad and aberrant theology that stands behind it. It says that people must be healed to have a true gospel Jesus experience. There must be some kind of sign or wonder for people to have a true gospel encounter. And that's not true. So when they send out people from their church, they're coming here to Europe, for instance, uh, in our case, and overtaking evangelical churches all over the place with their teaching, with their theology. They are aggressively moving into places in the world with their improper kingdom, kingdom now theology, um, as they call it. And as Christians, we certainly should be salt and light in the world. We should be a city on a hill. We should gleam more brightly than anything else, especially in these very, very difficult, evil, and wicked times. But they're proposing in their church what they send out are people who do not have the proper teaching, the proper basis, the proper theology, and they're sending them out to take over other churches, to take over the culture. And dominionism is a huge part of this, this perspective. The people and what their background is and what they believe and the people that they're sending out have a false understanding, an untrue understanding of what the gospel is. They don't know how to preach the gospel they don't know how to be salt and light, and they just know how they ought to try to heal people. I've only run into people from Bethel who have this wonky, wonky theology and this dominionism angle, 
We're going out. We're going to bring the kingdom of God with us, and we're going to pull it behind us like a sort of like a, I don't know, a wave in a boat or something. You know, the boat comes behind you, and the wave's going to be rippled, and you're going to bring the kingdom of God like a boat would through water. It's just, uh, it's really, really bad. And so they have aggressive people who are leaving their movement and their church to bring this kingdom now mentality to the rest of the world. So at the 36 minute mark, they start talking about leaven and how, uh, what it looks like to be leaven. I don't know where they're getting the term in relation to Christians. Uh, As far as I understand, leaven in the entire Bible is a negative connotation for sin and how, and or falsehood and how sin or falsehood spreads in a dump of clump of dough to create more falsehood. So in this section, they're talking about leaven, but the leaven in the Bible is talking about sin or falsehood being spread through a, a, a lump of dough. And uh, the leaven of the Pharisees, Jesus talks about, is, is what Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That was the religious spirit, basically, they're saying. Uh, here in this section, that, that the leaven of the Pharisees is a religious spirit and stuff like that. They have a real strange understanding of what the leaven of the Pharisees was. And I don't know how they're even referring to it or what, you know, the leaven of the Pharisees was unbelief, the, 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 the disbelief in Jesus Christ. And that leaven can spread the disbelief. It's not a spirit of religion that can spread in Christians. Um, I mean, we keep our, fix our eyes on Jesus. That will <laughs> oppose the leaven of the Pharisees. Bill Johnson goes on to talk about Daniel as a great example of being leaven in a system. So apparently you can be a positive leaven or a negative leaven. So your leaven, you know, if you're like Daniel, you can have the leaven of Daniel. You can spread, you know, your leaven. Uh, right before that, Dan Fairley asked him about being leaven in an environment. I really don't understand exactly what they're talking about being leaven meaning i mean i i guess i guess you mean you spread your goodness and your leaven in the environment so they they talk about spreading the the presence of god so i guess the leaven you can be a leaven presence bringer i mean you can be a daniel type of leaven presence bringer if you just kind of spread your goodness and your leaven around the environment it's really, uh, there's no biblical basis for this. The only leaven we're talking about is the leaven of false teaching and the leaven of the environment. Of the, um, now they've got me confused. <laughs> they had the leaven of, of the Pharisees. Um, there's no leaven of the environment. Being leaven in an environment. That's a quote. Being leaven. I don't know. It's really bizarre. It's false teaching. That's what false teaching is. It's confusing. It's bizarre. It, 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 it obfuscates. It muddies the waters. It does not clear things up for you. Um, being leaven in an environment is what exactly? Like, there's no f- teaching about that in the Word of God. The only leaven that's talked about in the Word of God is a negative light. Leaven spreads through the whole dump and infiltrates the whole the whole clump of dough with its leaven so which is always negative almost always negative in the entire bible at the 41 minute mark they start talking about the seven mountain mandate they named them the seven spheres the seven realms 
they sort of talked about this in, to lighten its effect, uh, not to, to use the word mandate necessarily because uh, that's a heavier word, but it's a sphere of influence, a seven realm, a seven mountain. He actually says, uh, and he admits at the beginning of this section, uh, that for years they had talked about the seven mountains. So they admitted right up at front, we've been teaching this thing for years. So at the 41-minute mark, they've been teaching the seven mountain mandate for years. It's dominionism. Seven mountain mandate. They've been talking about it for years, he says. It's not a new thing. It's not like we're making it up. It's not the critiques made up thing. They admit right up front that they talk and teach about the seven mountain mandate, which belongs to dominionism. Now they try and to light in this section, they try to like soften it a little bit, but they admit they've talked about it and they've, that's been their, their mantra for the last years, several years. So at the 42 minute mark, they explain it really well. At the very beginning, Dan Farrelly says that the seven mountain mandate was a prophetic word that came to Bill Bright of Campus Crusade. They try to validate it by saying that Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham had these separate special words at the same time, and they came to, together to compare notes. Uh, they had them at the perfect times, the perfect words. They came separately and, and compared their notes later on, um, and these prophetic ideas matched up almost perfectly. Um, and what they're doing here is they're trying to validate the authenticity of a, prophet, a prophetic word because two people had the same thought at the same time, came together later and said, oh, you had that idea, I had that idea too. It is possible for two different people to have two different ideas at the same time, come together later and say, oh, wow, you had that idea, I had that. That's happened to me before, myself. It wasn't prophetic, it was just people had similar ideas. Anyways... So um, it is possible that the Seven Mountain Mandate, these guys came together and they just had uh, good ideas that they thought were good at the time. I don't think they're good. I don't think, uh, I think they've been really manipulated. And Lance Wall now now is the Seven Mountain guy. And he is, I think they are, yeah, it's dominionism, pure and simple. And uh, so we got to move into those seven mountains of culture and take over and expel Satan from them. You know, um, uh, C. Peter Wagner wrote about this a lot, um, uh, you know, and sort of his idea on prayer walks and you got to go into certain cities and areas and communities and cast out the devil out of those regions before the gospel can even take root. Um, and because there's demons controlling certain regions and there's territorial spirits and this, that, and the other thing. It's really, really awful theology. Awful, awful, awful. <laughs> so at the 43-minute mark, Dan Fairley makes the indication that this sort of came about because we had sort of Christians insulating ourselves from the culture, and that wasn't cool. Uh, we have our own Christian movies. We have our own Christian music, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and... This was a reaction to that. We should really start thinking about being salt and light and leaven, he said. He brings the word leaven up again, and you're like, wait a minute, leaven and culture. And so, I don't, it's a misnomer. It's the wrong word. It's the wrong word. Le we're not meant to be leaven. Leaven is sin and corruption, and, it's, and, it, and the leaven corrupts the, the lump of dough, that's what the idea is in scripture throughout. From the very first pages of scripture, leaven is always used. 
poor Levin, it got a bad rap from the beginning. <laughs> you know, Levin is just something you need in bread, you know. It's, anyways, uh, you know, so Levin is the wrong, they're using the wrong term here. They basically say that Christian community at that time with Cunning, Lauren Cunningham and, and those guys who thought of the Seven Mountain Mandate, it was just a reaction to, um, you know, this Christian community that had bubbleized itself. And um, this is uh, also a theological perspective that came about as a result of that. Uh, I don't know. Does heresy come out of a reactionary theology, so to speak? Yeah, okay, sure, it does. This is heresy. I mean, Seven Mountain Mandate should be avoided. If dominionism and Seven Mountain Mandate was reactionary, it doesn't negate the fact that it was aberrant, right? So they say, well, you know, we were just reacting in those days, so it's not so bad. Really? Pelagius was reacting to the the the, the crazy, crazy uh, sin and wickedness in Rome and pervasively in Rome, and he thought of then his... It was a reaction. So, of course, aberrant and aberrant theologies and heresies can be reactions. But they put it off like, oh, it's just a reaction. You know, that it's not so bad because it was a reaction. I mean, yeah, if you looked at uh, the book of, I've got heresies over there on my shelf. Um, I should show you all my books one day. I just go through my books. That'd be fun. Um, but heresies is over there. It's those, all those heresies were reactions too. So yeah, that it's not an argument that it should be accepted or shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be thought of as a heresy because it was just a reaction. Of course, heresies are reactions. So they're usually reactions to conservative theology. That's good <laughs> too. At the 44-minute mark, Dan Fairley talks about language creating culture. He actually talks about Bill pretty straightforwardly. You have chapters and books and your own major books, When Heaven Invades Earth. So this sort of this invasion-type language as it relates to Seven Mountain Mandate, why this language and where are we at with this invasion-type language? He uses the term invasion himself, um, and he says it sort of sounds invasive quote unquote. <laughs> it sounds like the seven mountain mandate. Um, we're going to invade something or, or we're going to the soldier type of language. It's a militaristic type of language. And so Bill Johnson answers right away and says, we're our soldiers for Christ. He says, it's not the whole picture, but part of the picture. So he continues at the 45 minute mark in the seventies. He says in the late seventies, this language in Christianity was a bit more militaristic. Pastors uh, you know, there was a sergeant trying to get people in their spheres. You're a real estate agent, and they're encouraging people at the time to go take area for Christ. There was a militarism in that time frame. Um, that could certainly be true. Um, however, the Seven Mountain Mandate is different. Johnson and, and, and the like in the movement teach dominionism very clearly in their books, in his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, I mean, invade, there it is. Uh, dominionism is the thought that dominion and power was given in the fall when, when man agreed with Satan. Adam gave up sovereignty of this world to Satan. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and he is in control of this world. So we have to go into those seven mountains or those seven spheres or whatever they want to say, um, of influence and take back the authority and dominion that we lost to Satan in the fall. 
This is their position. That's what they teach. I can add a, a few quotes of his books um, and, and maybe put those in the comments later. Um, Satan has the authority and control over this world, but God is sovereign. That, so that's the, God has not relinquished control of this world to Satan in any way. Um, and they teach that we gave the dominion of this world away to Satan. We gave over dominion of Satan to this world, and we must go back and take it back because Christ uh, won that victory for us, and now we can go back into these spheres of influence and go take back because Christ has won it for us. It's kind of a little bit, um, a little bit uh, contradictory because if Christ won it, then why do we need to do anything, right? Christ won the victory in those seven regions and seven realms, what do we got to do with it? You know, like either he won it or he didn't, you know? So anyways, but they're excusing this language uh, because in the seventies, it was a bit more militaristic. Funny enough, uh, Bill Johnson's book was not written in the seventies. I don't believe I don't have it right at hand. I'm pretty sure it was written in the early two thousands. So 30 years later, it's still militaristic. I don't know. He was saying it was just the time, and that's what we did. We said those things. So he's trying to excuse his his own language by basically saying that, uh, you know, that's what we said at the time. That's the language we used. But 30 years later, I don't know, in the two th early 2000s, was the language still militaristic? <laughs> yeah. So anyways, in my book called Divergent Theology, I cover this specific thing, actually, that they're dealing with now. Um, on page 103 in my book, I deal with it. Um, page 104 as well. I have a whole chapter on it. So go grab that book. Um, you're welcome to get it via Kindle or or uh, or hard copy. And uh, I'll post the link in the description here so you can go read that and go look at that and how I describe what they teach I don't want to take so much more time on that, but dominionism is an aberrant theological position and they try to justify their language at the time he wrote because that's what everybody was doing. Christian language was militant at the time and so that's why he wrote sort of when heaven invades earth, yeah, invasion, the invasive type language. Bill says, and I, at the 46-minute mark, and I appreciate this from him very clearly, he says, we don't fight against people. So when we're using militant language, um, we, don't, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be fighting against people. We're born into war, he says. We're not fighting against people, quote-unquote. Our struggle is against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers. And so he's good for that. I appreciate that. Maybe you all remember the events back in the day. Uh, I think it was early 2000s, Acquire the Fire with Ron Lutz. And uh, yeah, they they have deep connections with the, the, those were militant, militant events. We actually said, we called Acquire the Fire and said we were the first night we went to one of the events and they had like tanks on the stage and like camouflage and it was all... That was all militant. It was, we're taking back this world. And I was like, whoa, what's going on here? And I called the event and said, basically, this is a militant type of faith. We're not, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, you know? And uh, so we're going to, you know, we're going to destroy MTV and the youth culture, these wicked powers of this world. We're going to go take them over. And um, it was militaristic for sure. I mean, I, we, we canceled our event. 
it was called Battle Cry at that event. We went to the San Francisco, um, uh, the the San Francisco Giants Stadium at, to attend that event, and it was very very militant. I mean, Battle Cry that was the name of the event, and so uh, we just it, these are these were the those times for sure, but um, you know. Their, their language still is basically a takeover. You know, we're moving in with this spiritual power to these areas of influence, and we're taking the presence of God with us. You know, Bill Johnson says he's a sprinkler system for the Holy Spirit. He walks down the aisles of the store, and he just kind of sprinkles, sprinkles the Holy Spirit everywhere he goes. And, I mean, it's in his book. It's not. I'm not making this stuff up. So, um, yeah, you can't sprinkle the Holy Spirit you can't take him with where you go and you can't, you know, sorry, you can't spread. You're not a presence spreader. So that was uh, my experience from the early uh, 2000s and youth ministry and how the how this battle cry event was very militaristic. And it was part of the NAR. So this whole section about the seven mountain mandate, spheres of influence, spheres of realms, spheres, realms, whatever you want to call them. It's really funny. They use this language that no one else uses. <laughs> so no one else in the business community uses these words. No one in the everyday workaday world uses things that they're talking about realms or spheres or you know, if you would say this type of stuff, I'm in the business sphere, like, I'm just coming into the atmosphere and I'm going to create a kingdom culture. You say that to a businessman, they would be like, uh, huh? <laughs> you know, I mean, this, this uber spiritual wor- wording, it, you know, it, it makes you sound better. You know, it makes them sound better. You know, realms and spheres, the spirit, this Christian spiritual ease. It's actually not, I'm not going to say it's Christian spiritualese. It's, it's Bethel ease. It's their own jargon. It's their own terminology. Um, they make up things, um, realms, atmospheres. I don't have a huge objection to anything in this section, but what I do have an objection to is what Johnson says at the end of this section. So he puts this little zinger in at the end that shows his cards at the end of this long section and he talks about bringing atmospheres that they have from Bethel to the world. And here's what he says, quote, the breakthroughs now that we have become the breakthroughs for everybody. Very, very telling. You might've missed it if you watched it and watched this end of this section. Then Dan Fairley confirms what he says. And he says, that our breakthroughs become the breakthroughs for the overall environment. So they believe in this theology of spiritual breakthrough, that God gives certain breakthroughs for certain anointed people and that they can transfer their breakthrough from themselves or from their environment at Bethel to other people or to other environments. This is key. If you watch anything in this whole video, this is the key statement. He said, the breakthroughs now that we have, be- that we have become the breakthroughs for everybody. You can transfer that anointing. You can transfer that breakthrough. Um, there's a spiritual breakthrough for everything. Um, and so it's most... Uh, poignantly um, written by about by C. Peter Wagner in his book called Territorial Spirits. 
See, Peter Wagner taught on all sorts of spiritual warfare and the dominionism angle. And the theological perspective is that we have to move into these spiritual realms. They use the term realms just now and, and, and take over those realms um, and cast the spirits out that are in those territories. So when Bill Johnson is very, very low key and subtle, but you got to catch this. When Bill Johnson says our breakthroughs, quote unquote, become the breakthroughs for the entire atmosphere, he means that you can move into those spiritual realms when you have breakthrough, when you have personal breakthrough, you can bring that personal breakthrough to that environment. And the whole environment will have breakthrough, meaning you will cast out the demons of that environment, maybe just by your very presence, because their theological position says that demons are ruling. Satan is ruler. And so that has dominion. He has dominion over those realms. And we need to take back that dominion. When we move in, we take over and have that dominion again as the church over those realms. So when you take your breakthrough with you, you're kicking out those territorial spirits. You're, you're cleaning house, as it were. By your very presence, maybe. Maybe you got to do a little ritual or something. You're bringing the presence of God with you. You're bringing the presence through worship, through whatever. That's why they go around playing guitar and you know, and taking the presence with them. There's, there's presence in the worship, right? So they bring the presence with them when they play the guitar and walk through the street and just, just say the name Jesus or something. Um, so, and you're kicking out demons that exist in that realm or that atmosphere. And they've consistently used that, those two terms consistently through the section. So this section shows, you know, very subtly at the very end, he talks for a long time and sort of kind of you know, you're not sure where he's going. At the very end, he puts that zinger in there that you know what they believe. They don't come right out and say it, but at the last words, they show you, you can bring breakthrough and that it will be the breakthrough for the entire atmosphere. Dan Fairley then, after Bill says it, he confirms it. We, Dan Fairley confirms what he said. We can bring breakthroughs for the entire atmosphere. That all happened at the 56-minute mark. Go have a look. So he talked for a long time from about the uh, 40, let's see where are we at. He was at the, about the 46-minute mark. And at about the 56-minute mark, he says and, con and says this statement at the end of a long section. So um, that's a very aberrant perspective. The concept and theological position of territorial spirits is deeply unbiblical. C. Peter Wagner and others have taught that we have to move into areas of demonic control, like, for instance, San Francisco. Um, take the spirit of homosexuality, of course, as a foothold on San Francisco. So you go in there and you move it out. You know, you kick out that demon. Or um, like uh, Holly Pivik uh, has written about their expedition to Mount Everest, and the, they went to Mount Everest to cast out the queen of heaven. So the 1040 window is, you know, that historically had a, had no um, gospel influence or no gospel takeover in those areas. So they have to cast, the reason that happened has happened for them is because the spirit that some spirit or something has control over that entire region. And what's the highest peak in that region is Mount Everest. So they identified through a prophetic utterance that 
Um, the queen of heaven is controlling the 1040 window from the peak of Mount Everest. So they took an expedition to Mount Everest and tried to cast out the demon, the queen of heaven, and threw her into an abyss. So this event where they went to Mount Everest is documented in the book by C. Peter Wagner called Confronting the Queen of Heaven. Um, it was written in 19, yeah, copyright 79, 80, 82, uh, oh, or 1998. So I don't know when it was originally published, but, and I don't know if they wrote this before or after, um, and I haven't read the whole thing myself, but they went there to Mount Everest to confront the queen of heaven and to cast her out. And by casting her into abyss or whatever they did, and this is a prime example of moving into a place, going into it, like saying, we're going to take our, our breakthroughs and we're gonna go there. So let's uh, say somewhere in India, maybe where brothels or child slave labor or prostitution are rampant. You go and kick out the demon of incubus or succubus, uh, these demons of lust. And the, then the gospel message can't even take a hold or make headway in those areas until those territorial spirits are expelled. This is highly, highly unbiblical. There's no biblical precedent for it. You can't make, take your breakthrough with you into an atmosphere. If there is such a thing as a personal spiritual breakthrough, then you can't transfer it to an atmosphere by your very presence, or you can't carry the presence of God with you into a place. It's a whole theological position um, that, that is very, very tenuous. You can think of the WP films, one of the, the Holy Ghost film. Um, I think it was the first Holy Ghost film where they went into a Hindu temple and worshiped to try to take the presence of God into that place. They believe that worship brings presence and changes atmospheres. You can see that with the group, the Bethel group, uh, Sean Foyt took his presence with him into the White House when President Trump was president. And they, they, they believe they were taking presence. You look at all those events on Instagram, they're playing guitar and they're standing on the Capitol steps and they're bringing the presence of God. Uh, uh, Jen Johnson, the daughter of Bill Johnson, the daughter-in-law of Bill Johnson had an Instagram post where she was walking through the halls of the White House and saying, we're bringing the presence. So um, they believe it. He believes and they teach that worship brings presence. Notice with uh, all these uh, interesting things, uh, have any of them tried to do that with Biden um, in office? Have any of them tried to get into government agencies and, and take the, the power of God and the, you know, the presence of God uh, once President Trump left, left office? Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really funny. I just find those things kind of contradictory. Anyways, uh, you see all these type of movements. They've moved into the White House trying to bring the presence of God. And so they believe they are the presence bringers. They carry the presence of God with them from Bethel or wherever. So those kids go to BSSM, they take that presence with them and they go and, and impose it onto another environment. They bring their personal breakthrough with them and impose it into an atmosphere. Or they don't even have to impose it in an atmosphere. They just go into an atmosphere and their just presence in that atmosphere brings their personal breakthrough. The next section in this video then is, is it quote unquote, is Bethel church a cult? The next section has a sign even on the podcast itself. You can see it on the, on the face of the podcast. If you have to put that on your material 
and do damage control and actually answer this question, then there's a problem. Even if you're not a cult, even if we looked into you and you said, you know what, it's not a cult. But if you have to do damage control and, and answer this question, then there's a problem. Even if there's rumblings that you are a cult, that's problematic, man. Even that the possibility exists that they could be a cult and that they're answering that question is just, wow, that's wow. Um, they have to even answer this question is a huge black eye. It's damage control like crazy. I think of Al Mohler's recent statement on Bethel on a podcast after the wake up Olive controversy, you know, where Olive, this, this uh, young girl, four-year-old girl had died in her sleep and they tried to resurrect her for like eight days or so. He made a statement on Bethel about Bethel and he said, Bethel church is not a church. According to Martin Luther and the standard set in the Reformation, that preaching the word of God is the main, one of the main tasks of the church, that makes them not a church. So Al Mohler, one of the main leaders of, evang- of, of, of evangelicalism, is saying that this movement is not a church. That's huge. Um, I don't know if I agree with Al Mohler on lots of other stuff. I'm very skeptical of the Southern Baptist seminaries uh, right now as a result of critical theory, critical race theory invading. But he's rather well-known evangelical leader. And he said that Bethel Church is not a church and that makes them a cult. <laughs> wow. If you're, a, if you're claiming you're a Christian church and Al Mohler calls you a, a cult or not a Christian church, that makes you a cult. I mean... Wow. Yeah. So previously they've said, I know I'm not a wife beater. I know that I'm not a cheater on my wife. Um, And so I don't want to give credit to such a thing by answering that question. Are you a wife beater? And they're saying, you know, are you a cult? We don't want to give credence to that idea, but they do. They answer, they try to answer the question. So uh, they've used that illustration in previous episodes. So actually trying to answer it here is actually saying that there's credibility to the claim. Why even answer it? If you know you're not a cult, then don't answer it. According to their own illustration, they shouldn't even be answering this question. It's wild that they even answered it uh, according to their own standard. He gets upset that they even have to answer the question. So then why answer it? At the 57-minute mark, he says the same thing. Um, Then Dan Fairley talks about his background, the Assemblies of God Church, his own quote, was an Assemblies of God church without the Holy Spirit. These guys are just hilarious. You can't be saved without the Holy Spirit, Dan. So did you have the Holy Spirit before you came to Bethel? So these guys, again, their elitism comes through. The Holy Spirit is necessary for you to be saved and sealed in salvation. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. And so uh, did his churches before have the Holy Spirit? They didn't have the Holy Spirit. Then you, you weren't a Christian before. Um, so he confirms, uh, his theological perspective that they believe that other churches do not have the Holy spirit. They believe it. He just showed his colors here in this section at the 57 minute mark that other churches, they don't, the AOG church that he was at, the assemblies of God church he was at did not have the Holy spirit. They believe it. They show their colors. If they didn't have the Holy spirit, you can't be saved. The Holy Spirit opens blind eyes and soften hearts to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you cannot be a Christian. So Dan Fairley shows that he wasn't part of a Christian church before, but now he is. 
This is part of their cult-like mentality. Other churches, to them, don't have the Holy Spirit, but we do at Bethel. They're actually answering their own question and showing their spiritual elitism, which is a mark of a cult. So from the 57 to the 58-minute mark, Dan Fairley talks about how he grew up around the Jonestown people in San Francisco before they went off to Guyana. This is crazy that he brings this up in this context, addressing their church as a cult. Just by him bringing it up, Jim Jones and the leader of the Jonestown massacre in the same context as this discussion. It's just rich because Jim Jones, we know the story there. Jim Jones also healed people. He also claimed to have the Holy Spirit. He claimed to preach Christ as well. He claimed to preach the gospel. Of course, it all went sideways very, very quickly. But wow, Dan Fairley himself bought it up all by himself. I didn't bring it up. Wow. Um, just by him bringing this concept up. Wow. I knew a person as well from Bethel who actually said this statement as well. She said to me personally, we're not all drinking the Kool-Aid at Bethel. What's that a reference to? The reference is to Jim Jones, who made all his adherents, a thousand people nearly, drink Kool-Aid, cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, and they all died. When you say, we're not drinking the Kool-Aid, it means we're not being led by a false uh, apostle prophet who's going to kill us in the end. (sighs) That he brings up Jim Jones here is, wow. Bill Johnson then jumps in at the 58-minute 30 mark and says, by nature, cults are controlling and exclusive. You break off ties with everybody else. I mean, I know testimony after testimony after testimony of people who have done that with Bethel. They may not have done that at the direct express command of an apostle or a prophet, but they, in the end, in essence, break off contact with other Christians who are calling their ideology and their involvement with Bethel into question. I know of three parents right now who are very, very concerned that their children are currently involved at Bethel. I I even had one parent in Germany, here in Germany, call me from Ohio who was beside herself with worry that her child had uprooted her life and drove out to Bethel and cut off all ties with her family. Lindsay Davis's story, the story of her life, how they treated her there, they shut her out and cut her off. There is story after story after story. Now this new podcast called Heaven Bent, I really encourage you to go listen to that. It's very, very interesting. I don't, encourage, I don't encourage the woman's theological perspective, but she exposes Bethel for what it is. Uh, you definitely need to listen to this whole series. It talks about the interview person after person, story after story of people who are controlled, manipulated in the movement and in the practices. They might not have been cut off or cut ties with people, but in essence, they did. So there may not be this control from the top down, but there is some kind of manipulation and control where people are cutting off ties. The main qualm against this ministry is that they're elite. You know, we have the Holy Spirit. We're ones, he just said it. We're the ones who have the Holy Spirit here. We're the ones who have it right. Everyone else is wrong. If someone criticizes Bill Johnson, he won't even entertain the critique. 
those uh, who critique the Toronto blessings, he won't even give them the time of day. So this is all signs of a cult. You don't engage critique. Uh, you say, don't touch the Lord's anointed, <laughs> you know, or you'll be condemned. These, I've heard these things everywhere. You know, they'll, they'll say that people who critique them are Pharisees or have a religious spirit or have the spirit of Judas. <laughs> so Chris Valentin, as he preached on January uh, 2020, when I was there, he said, there's a spirit of Judas who critiques. I mean, does anybody want to have the spirit of Judas to betray Jesus Christ? These terms and the things they do in their church to minimize and diminish critique are absolutely cult mentalities. Controlling people with drug-like addiction, you know, they keep them addicted to the next high that the Holy Spirit encounter will, will provide. Those are the addictive and control mechanisms that cult leaders keep in place to control their people. They can say that they're not controlling, but their language is controlling, their practices are controlling, their experiences are controlling, so that they keep people coming back for more, like drug addicts. People need the next anointing. They need the next filling. They need the next electrocution or whatever, you know, the shock thing that happens to people. It's an addictive cycle. Johnson says he's not controlling, but it's the opposite. It is actually an effect happening at Bethel every day. In the operation of what they do, it's cult-like for sure. At the 58-minute mark, they said, if we're a cult, we're terrible at it. That's funny, but it couldn't be further from the truth. They're one of the most fastest growing global movements in the world. They're not bad at it. They're extremely good at it. They're growing like weeds in a garden. They just broke ground on a multi-million dollar campus for BSSM. And I'll post the video of that in the comments as well. They're not terrible at it. They're awesome at it. That's the problem. That's why critics have raised concerns and raised red flags and said, we need to pay attention to this movement because it's aberrant. Not only is it aberrant, but they also are very good at what they do. I was there. I mean, I looked at, I was just sitting in the very back. Everything that happens in their auditorium is just top notch. Very, very professionally done. Lighting. Camera. They got these huge $10,000, $100,000 cameras sweeping across the audience. The stage stuff is, is awesome. They're good at what they do, and they suck people into their movement in droves. I know Germ and from, from Germany right now, there are at least a dozen people that I know as young people who are at Bethel. I don't know if they've stayed there or not or what the situation is right now, but I knew that they were going to Bethel in the fall. They go to Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. German kids. Bethel draws more Germans than any other nationality. Bill Johnson claimed that himself. Um, so they're good at it. And if they are a cult, and if they do these, have these cult-like tendencies that I've explained, then they're very, very good at it. If the opposite is true. They're really good at drawing and sucking people and getting people in to be converted, as it were, converted to their theology, converted to their way of ministry, their way of life. And then they send people back to the rest of the world, to Germany and wherever they've come from, and they turn things upside down. They don't go to school over there just to sort of get a nice education and sort of, you know, come back and just don't do anything with it. They're introducing their theologies and practices to the churches that they return to. 
I've noticed that here in Germany, France, and Switzerland, everywhere around here, these Bethel students are coming back to these and introducing and trying to convince and turn churches upside down to this way of ministry and theology. Dan Fairley says that, that when you do psychological profiles of cults, they start thinking alike, alike, groupthink, of course, and they all start having the same type of personality. There's one dominant personality and it, and it fits here. If it quacks like a duck, swims like a duck, looks like a duck, then it's a duck, man. I mean, Bill Johnson is the dominant personality. He's a California cool kid, man, and just laid back and really fun and easygoing. And everybody has his theology there. There's no outliers. And if you're an outlier, you're quickly shown the door. They all believe it. They all hold to it. You know, you can ask them and they'll all hold to basically what he believes. They hold to this theology and he is the cult of personality. There's no question. So it is groupthink. They do hold to it. They do believe it. So here's what I'm going to do, everybody. I'm going to put this episode into two sections. I've got a lot more material left, and I want to give it a fair fair handling. So uh, I'm going to cut up my review of episode six of Rediscover Bethel into two sections, and I'll cover um, in my next episode the next section. So thanks for tuning in to this episode of Churchmaneur's Podcast. You can find out more information at my website at richardpmore.net. I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. You're welcome to follow me on Twitter if you do that kind of thing and you still haven't been canceled. My Twitter handle is at richardpmore23. You can also email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast, any comments or questions, please reach out on one of those platforms. You can also pick up my book or Kindle um, at Amazon. It's called Divergent Theology. Just search that on Amazon. You'll find it. No problems. God bless you. Until next time, take care. <laughs>